Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares. So, this is the penultimate episode of 2022. We're at the Garden Cinema again on Tuesday the 20th to watch the wonderful Coen Brothers' Blood Simple. My co-host for that evening was the producer and now regular contributor to the Cinematologists, James Dean. I'm not going to contextualise the live recording too much in this intro. Suffice to say that James was absolutely superb, both a really astute appreciator of the Coen brothers as artists, but also able to give some fantastic nuggets from his own personal experience of having actually met and watched them at work. The chat is definitely worth listening to just for that alone. Listening to James and watching the film, which was an absolutely incredible DCP restoration by Criterion with 5.1 sound, I was just reminded about pure joy of simply watching a film. I know it's almost heresy to say, and James touches on this with regards to the Cohen's overall filmography, but the film almost seems to offer itself up without any underlying sense of message. It's cine-literate, but unpretentiously so, and it's refreshingly apolitical. Of course, it's possible to say there is no such thing as a cultural product that is apolitical. Everything is defined by an underlying ideology. As a well-trained cultural studies scholar, the notion of always already being within ideology is something that is drilled into me. And yes, I can see the irony of that phrasing. Indeed, one could suggest that the Coens whether they would explicitly acknowledge it or not, speak to the wider illusions of their work. One could describe them as chroniclers of the absurdist contradictions at the heart of the American dream. Yet this is never seemingly imposed didactically. On the contrary, there is arguably a respect for audiences' literacy of, and practice in, to borrow a phrase from Stuart Hall, decoding and negotiating the signifiers of film. That might sound overwrought in the way that I've put it. What I mean is that they revel in the possibilities of cinema as form. Unlike many other filmmakers, for whom referencing is more of a pastiche or an exercise in nerding out, the Coens invite you into the self-contained pleasure of the film they are presenting you with. Even with their noir invocations, exploitation riffs, and tours of pulp violence, one never really feels excluded from enjoying, on a pure level, the dark filmic pleasures. The very notion of cinephilia, or fandom, can seem like an exclusive club, with clandestine membership procedures and almost Kafkaesque punishments if one makes an assertion counter to the prevailing wisdom. Watching and listening to this pristinely recreated digital artefact in such a perfect auditorium and with the knowledge of a shared audience intent to empathetically enjoy, my ingrained will to analyse and interpret gradually just succumbed to the essential cinematic pleasure. Looking back over the last few months, if there has been a theme to this season of the podcast, it has been a kind of tension between how we define and categorise films, the push to define the status of cinema in a fractured and uncertain media landscape, and the ephemeral fleeting joy of those minutes and hours of empathy and immersion, where the mechanistic shaping of light and sound creates a canvas of illusion which offers the chance to connect the external universe with one's internal dreamscape. In order to get me into that place for this season, I really want to thank all the contributors to the podcast this season. 
Guest hosts, James Dean, Caroline Katz, Mary Wilde, Sarah Cleaver, David Lowbridge-Ellis, Catherine Wheatley, Savina Petkova, Chris Cassingham, and Clarice Lockery. The podcast really has functioned thanks to your generosity of time and insight. And also thanks to all of the other guests that we have interviewed on the show, particularly during the London Film Festival episodes. Also thanks to George and all the staff at The Garden for hosting the live episodes. All of you out there who are in the vicinity of London should should definitely join their membership scheme. It's a magical and still largely undiscovered venue in the heart of London. Neil, of course, who I know will be listening from his sabbatical. It was great to have him back on for the Sight and Sound episode. I want to thank him very much for his support and encouragement behind the scenes. It's definitely been a challenge to do this without him, and he's been nothing short of totally supportive of uh, the things I've done this season. However, I'm very much looking forward to getting him back so that we can return to what is the main purpose of the show, our movie conversations. There is one episode to come, which is our end of year review. This has already been recorded though and will drop on the 27th of December. I wish you all the best of holidays, whatever it is you're doing out there, whether it's taking a break from movies or taking the chance to imbibe many more while you're on a break from work. We'll be back again in the new year. Thanks so much for continuing to lend us your time and attention on the podcast. We really do appreciate it. So let's get into the live audio. This is me with James Dean and the audience at the Garden Cinema discussing the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple. Thank you, thank you so much. Welcome to the Cinematologist podcast, our final live screening of the year, once again, at the wonderful Garden Cinema. We have an excellent turnout tonight, so thanks to you all for coming. Uh, this must be the great and the good of Coen Brothers' London fandom, I think. I guess we'll find that out later on. One person who I do know is a Coen Brothers fan is my co-host for this evening, the producer, James Dean. Welcome, James. Hi, Daria. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming back on and being such a supporter of the podcast. Before we get to Blood Simple, maybe you could mention a little bit, perhaps, about your work that you're, you know, the work that you're working on right now, and what we might expect in the next sort of six months, maybe. Yeah. So at the moment, I'm, I'm sort of bouncing between a film and a TV show. Um, film, especially working in the UK, is always a labour of love, and telly is a more reliable source of income so I made a film at the start of the year um, that's finished now called Apocalypse Clown um, that is a comedy about four clowns on a road trip through Ireland when the power goes out Um, and they're they're basically looking to try and turn the power back on um, so that they can have their TV special that's been promised to them. It makes absolutely no sense at all. <laughs> but it's uh, we're very pleased with it. We're very um, excited. And hopefully it will be out um, here next summer. Vertigo uh, are releasing it here. Um, but we're, we're sort of trying to find the right world premiere at the moment at the start of the year to launch it from. So there's that. And then... Um, a BBC One detective show called Better that is coming out uh, in mid-February. So those are my two projects for the year. Fantastic. So we'll look out for those for sure. Um, So you've been on the show before, obviously, and we've talked about our sort of... uh, similar taste let's say in 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 films and and you've chosen the coen brothers and you've chosen blood simple tonight 
Um, obviously, this is Joel and Ethan Cohen's directorial debut. So you're a big fan of your uh, of their work, but you also have some interesting connections that maybe you can tell us about with regards to the Coens. Yeah, there are two things that sort of um, connect me to them. The first was that I, uh, when I was 18, I decided I wanted to go to the US for university because I kind of knew I wanted to be in the, the entertainment business and it felt like that was the place to be. So I won this scholarship to North Carolina and it had... Um, uh, the student union had a film program where they showed on 16 millimeter five films a week so I was kind of just lost in that world and and uh, the first weekend I was there I saw Blood Simple on the on the student union screen it just had such a big impact on me in that moment and just like who are these who are these guys you know and it, there was just something in the tone of it that just absolutely spoke to me and then it's when part I, of that um, uh, early American independent kind of movement, I think, isn't it? It's really in that in that sort of wheelhouse. Definitely, definitely, it's at the start of the eighties as well. It sort of came out of the the great period of American cinema, and just these new voices were peeking through. And then when I graduated, um, I went to Los Angeles for a couple of years to work there. And uh, by, I mean, how it happened was I got to work on the movie Misery oh, wow. um, as James Kahn's stand-in, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, but Barry Sonnenfeld was the director of photography on that, and he um, had shot this shot, yeah, and yeah, Raising yeah. Arizona and Miller's Crossing, and they were just finishing Miller's Crossing uh, while he was shooting Misery. And one day he we were both kind of leaving the studio together and I said, where are you going? And he said, oh, we're just going to check the work print for Miller's Crossing. Do you want to come? Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, that'd be nice. And uh, and it was just the four of us at Deluxe, Barry, me, Fantastic. Joel and Ethan Cohen, just watching this work print of Miller's Crossing. I just felt yeah. I died and gone to heaven, you know. <laughs> um, and we came out and, and, and had a drink after that and um, Barry was going into directing and he went on to do yeah, the Adams yeah, yeah. Family, um, Men in Black, and other things. As that's well. right. And then, uh, and Joel said to me, "Yeah, we're we're thinking of uh, one of your countrymen to take Barry's place," which was, of course, Roger Deakins, sure. who went on to shoot the uh, pretty much every other Everything film since then, except a couple. So that was my Coen Brothers connection, but it's yeah. uh, it's a nice one. Yeah, yeah. So what were they like then, as a, as a pair at that time? Were they f fairly sort of low key or? You know, Cine Files um, wanted to talk about cinema or... Sure. I mean, and off the back of that, I've, the rest of the story was I got a job as a runner on Barton Fink right. off the back of that. So I actually could see them when I wasn't running around, you know, doing stuff for the film, could see them direct. And, and they, have, you know, I think they are what everyone sees, which is they're just very laid back but focused. Um, and they have this sort of special brotherly language almost and finish each other's sentences and just can sort of look over and they know if they've got it or not or whatever um and it was a very quiet you know set and often it would finish early and uh you know if they got what they got it was just you know you felt like you were in the hands of yeah. masters making making barton fink anyway which was their fourth film uh, at that point yeah, so yeah it was it was amazing. Yeah, very different to the the sort of stereotype of the master otter barking orders at everyone. I think. Um, so, w w 
in the the series that we've done here at the garden we've done a lot of films that have a kind of meta quality to them they're films about films in many ways and also films that are on a small budget so this was one and a half million um but it has a, a level of complexity ambition and cine literary uh, literacy and in and you know many people have said this is the announcement of the of the coen brothers really i mean do you think there's something that kind of early career filmmakers could learn from 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 this film? Yes, no question. Um, I think what they've done so brilliantly in this film is um, they sort of, I mean, they they effectively always make comedies. I would say they just there's something fundamentally funny about all their films at their base, but they sort of move through different genres, and this is clearly like a film noir. Yeah. Um but of course it's not in black and white as all the great film noirs where it's in color. So I don't think they particularly want to be art house film directors or anything like that. They wanted to make um a film noir type movie um but but present it, you know, in color out of out of the genre in that regard. And I think they wanted to kind of subvert the story and tell us tell a clever story. I mean it's effectively the postman Always rings twice sure. with a bit of red harvest yeah. and double indemnity. Maybe yeah, and double well. indemnity. Yeah. But they sort of had their own twist on that story. By sure. I mean, for people who haven't seen the film, I'm not going to spoil it. But there's a really clever twist in it that you kind of don't really see coming because you think you're going through the film noir process. And then I mean, the other key thing about it is how brilliant it is visually for a first film. I mean, you from the very start the windscreen wipers wipe off the credits and i feel like we've seen that since but i felt like oh these ideas are yeah. already here from the very start we're dealing with people who really see things visually you know and, and people who are interested in film or who write films you're so focused on dialogue the whole time because that seems to be what the script is but you know cinema is ultimately a visual medium and there are just so many moments in this film where they do stuff with the camera that is just so unexpected and unusual, or they put the camera in an interesting place. Um, and it's thrilling, you know, you feel like for a first film, these guys had really thought about this, probably watched a lot of, of films in that genre, put their own comic twist on it. And then the other thing you should always do with a film, and certainly a debut, is have a couple of big set pieces. <laughs> yeah. And and we can talk about them afterwards, but there are there are certainly a couple in this that are just absolutely brilliant um, and just leave their mark. And, you know, that sort of thing when you come out of a film and you don't want to say, well, it's a great film. You want to say you've got to see this film because of this moment. Um, I would say the ultimate is the Harry and Sally orgasm moment where it's like <laughs> it's a great film but you gotta see harry and sally because of that moment and there are, i would argue there are a couple of scenes in this that i would have said the same about you know you've got to see how they did this brilliant yeah so there's lots that we can talk about um afterwards and i think placing this film as the first in their you know their entire filmography let's say i think is interesting because there's so many elements that you'll see in in their films to come that that obviously this is the uh, starting point so there'll be Q&A afterwards so please stay after the film but that's enough to talk for now um let's get on with it this is the coen brothers blood simple
you know, you know, a friend of mine a while back broke his hand and put in a cast. Very next day he falls, protects his bad hand, and he breaks his good one. So now he breaks that too, you know, fall. So now he's got two busted slippers, you know. So I said to him, I said, Creighton, I said, I hope your wife really loves you, because for the next five weeks you can't even wipe your own goddamn hat. <laughs> <laughs> That's a test, ain't that? Test the true love. I got a job for you. <laughs> uh, well, if Ben's right and it's legal, I'll do it. It's not strictly legal. Well, he's right, I'll do it. in reference to that gentleman and my wife. The more I think about it, the more irritated I get. Huh? Well, could you tell me what it is you want me to do, or is it a secret? It's no joke. You want me to kill him? So this won't, won't interest you, huh? I didn't say that. All I said was you're an idiot. Hell, you've been thinking about it for so much, it's driving simple. I'll give you $10,000. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Trust you not to go simple on me and do something stupid. I mean, really stupid. <laughs> now, why should I trust you? For the money. For money. Yeah. That's right, smart of money. In Russia. To make only 50 cents a day. How good was that? I mean, what's amazing about it was how good it looked, actually. Because oh, my, my old DVD is nothing like that. So just that caption at the end was saying that Criterion have obviously done a number on it and the sound mix was fantastic, which would be Skip Lucy, who uh, was the mixer on the movie, I think. Had sure. obviously done a 5.1 Dolby mix on it. So that's as good as yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, ever yeah. been seen, I'm sure. No, it was ab absolutely incredible. I mean, I mean, there's so many things we could we could kind of talk about and we'll come out to the audience in a second, obviously. But, um, I mean, we talked at, at the beginning about um, Barry Sonnenfeld and the, you know, the um, cinematography. And it's interesting when you think about, when we talk about filmmakers who've got a, a long filmography and we mentioned they changed to Roger Deakins, but... Just from that, from that being their first film, it's incredible 
the the way that it is shot and the transitions and everything that obviously was worked out so carefully in terms of how they put that together. I mean, there was no sort of obvious fade to black and a simple kind of move through times in sequences or in the actual scene that they were in. Everything was really interestingly done in terms of in terms of that and just so much of it, just incredible, really. They storyboard everything um, and always have, I think, from the very start. I mean, I think with this one, because it was their first movie, they raised all the money privately. Obviously, they'd never made a film before. Barry Sonnenfeld hadn't shot a film before. That's, it's incredible. So huh? they just, you know, they sort of had these ideas, I think, for the shots they wanted um, and figured them out how to do it. I mean, the the one over the bar, oh, the, bar. the drunk <laughs> on the bar, which was kind of the first one where you're like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. That, I think, is the camera's on a, a plank of wood, basically, with people holding it either side so they can lift it Sure. Over him because they didn't have techno cranes or you know fancy arms at that point. I think they just yeah. figured out how do we, you know, rather than just go along the bar, everyone does that. <laughs> let's chuck a drunk in the way and uh, and clamber over him. Um, and that's one of you know six or seven really startling moments. The the bit where she falls into the pillow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a whole rig they made where the the camera is on one section of it and she's sort of on the other section of it. it's kind of a v a v-shaped rig that they did so that the camera and her could fall at the same speed down onto the pillow um so just the ingenuity of it and the way they think about the camera you know and it's it's just so important in, yeah. in great cinema you know everyone obviously loves scorsese who's kind of the master of moving the camera around but in their own way, you know, they, they're they not quite as frantic, but there's just some wonderful moments. And then with Raising Arizona, the next film, they sort of took it even further, I think, um, you know, just by coming up with more crazy visual ideas of climbing up the sides of houses and going into people's mouths and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's wonderful to see, you know, and, and you just know that it's all been worked out um, and it's just a, ca- a case of getting it done. I know, and, and just so many lovely little touches. I mean, we can talk about M. Emmett Walsh, but at the end there, when he's got the same color, he's got his gloves to match his suit, and then there's that bit with the earlobe over the glass. It was just, I was just absolutely cringing there towards the end. But even, you know, even with the shots coming through the uh, the you know holes in the wall, that's been done like a thousand times. But it just seems it seems so new here it seems like it's 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 an interesting thing that's been thought out and i think one of the things that, that happens i think with contemporary films one of the critiques which i never really understand you know in in, in con, you know, the way that contemporary films are sort of talked about is if there's too much directorial intervention there's too much going on a lot of critics are kind of like well this is pretentious it's too much and i really never understood that but here you just it's really entertaining to see the ingenuity of of everything that's going on visually and i think that i mean that shot and others a lot of the lighting doesn't make sense like it's not motivated sure the camera moves aren't motivated and that's often a thing that you know especially directors of photography feel like they always need to do and are a bit embarrassed if it's if stuff isn't motivated but here like that the light from the room on the other side of the wall it's like one light yeah, bulb. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. just no way 
if you shot a hole in the wall, any light would come through from no, one no, no. light bulb. And I think they did it by having lots of tiny lights sure. through each thing. But it just makes that scene. Um, I mean, that sequence is unbelievable. With mm. that, with but that. they're not afraid of, of kind of se- almost saying to the audience, we know that you know that this is a film. And yeah. we're going to play around with all of these devices, and we want you to kind of enjoy enjoy that as much as anything. That's else. the jo- absolutely the yeah. joy of it all, and the of the sort of the visual relish they have. We are all part of it, you know. We're the audience for it, um, and you know, if if you if it sort of tickles your fancy, then you know, all the better. Because I mean, it's it's one of the reasons they you know they they have such a devoted following is because you know you're in such thoughtful hands and they do have this incredible visual flair that is in almost every movie in some way or another. Um, as well as this sort of humor meets extreme violence, um, you know, the sort of mutual area of that where it's not kind of, uh, it's not laid on thick, but um, the, the it's funny enough. Yeah. You know, you you can find humor in the extreme violence because yeah. it's not laid on that thick. But the, the, this one at the beginning, obviously, of their career is not quite as knowing and satirical as some of the later films. I, I would say it's much more. We understand like pulpy noir, and we're going to play on those those signifiers and. You know, you could you can kind of see that that they've got a low budget, but they're going to do everything is there. There's no fat on this movie at all, which is incredible when you consider that central sequence, which is almost you know it must be at least ten minutes long, where Ray discovers the body and and well what we thought was a body, and then sort of takes it out, and that that takes quite a lot of courage, really. I mean, you know, in filmmaking, in a filmmaking sense, to say we're going to have this long sequence in the, in the middle where you're where you're just going to follow exactly what happens. But it's it's such a great sequence because you, it apparently was based on them watching Torn Curtain, the, oh, the right. late Hitchcock film, where there's a line in it from the Paul Newman character, I think, where he says, you know, it actually takes a long time to kill someone. It's not that easy. You know, in movies, <laughs> yeah. you just kind of kill people and they're dead instantly. But in real life, so they tell me, um, you know, it, it can take a long time. And I think in, the, in Torn Curtain, it takes 10 minutes to kill this person. And I think Ethan said, well, we're going to do it in 20. And yeah. so <laughs> you get this very protracted scene, but it's so brilliant. We're all assuming Marty's dead. Then we realize, oh, there's a little cough in the back. Oh, maybe he's alive. It freaks Ray out. Yeah. Then the truck comes along and then he's, you know, he's burying him alive in his, you know, his mania. Yeah. And then of course the genius moment of the gun and is the bullet yep. in, in the chamber, chamber. In the or right. is it one yeah. of the three empties sure. where are we in the chamber i mean it's just a sensational yeah. moment but the moment of like the the twist let's say or the first one at least um it it's so clever because it's such it's quite a simple div- plot device really from the start i mean it, it, in terms of the story and the narrative that it's not really anything that needs explaining but yet when when that occurs when when the when M- Emmett Walsh shoots uh, Marty then suddenly it puts in it, it it puts into action a kind of chain a, a chain of perspectives which are very complicated because then you've got two characters who both think that the other has done it and then they're speaking to other uh, each other at cross purposes but yet we know 
what's gone on as an audience. But it's really fascinating to see that script development play out in in that way really really sort of clever on a very simple premise really yeah it's unbelievable for a first script to have it be that airtight and of course neither of them ever see the Visser character ray and abby never see him no they don't even know he exists no. and so that's why the last line is just so funny because she she it hasn't occurred to either of them that there's another person here even though he's seen Ray has seen the photo and knows there's sort of someone out there. But in our minds, because it's such a brilliant performance as well, and sure. we love be having him on screen in his hilarious yellow suit, <laughs> um, you know, in our minds, he, you know, it doesn't really quite occur to us because we know he exists and we have our own perspective on it that they don't have. We're one step ahead of all of them. Mm. Um you know the whole time and that's of course part of the joy of of you know thrillers yeah uh, where you usually are a step ahead of the characters yeah he he makes the, the the film in many ways doesn't he because i mean i know that i was reading the the roger ebert on online um review of the film and, and he called him the the the, the poet of sleaze <laughs> which i thought was a great description and he just sort of embodies that stereotype i suppose of, of a kind of tech texas character you know whether it's a cop or a private detective and and even his enunciation and the voice is just is just wonderful and it, it's great to see him kind of in in a role like this because he's been in a thousand roles this this actor and and just sort of makes the movie in many ways i think yeah it's for me it'll always be his greatest performance i mean he's in the start of raising arizona for five seconds and yeah, uh, yeah. which is which is a nice little um you know th throw forward but um yeah if you take him out of it the other performances are all very straight yeah, yeah. um everyone's very serious and a little bit afraid or confused or angry uh, except for maurice of course who's who's uh you know uh, has his own wonderful tone but but the Vissa character and his performance is definitely the key, I think, to the pleasure we get from the movie because he's very unpredictable. He finds things funny. He's just great looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the wardrobe is amazing. He finds humor in, in, in funny little things and they're not afraid to give him time yeah um on the screen you yeah. know to just to just play things out and he's kind um, of taken capitalism to a very specific place hasn't he he's oh, yeah. got this fixation about what happens in russia and clearly you know he's got no moral compunction about taking the job on let's put it that way that's it and that <laughs> i think that monologue was added afterwards right just to give him the first point of view in the movie because mm. otherwise you you take that away and you're in the car with um you know ray and abby straight away and it becomes a bit more their story and he for some reason they decided to to sort of change the point of view at the start and right. give him that monologue about russia and his you know his uh interest in the uh yeah. soviet system <laughs> right yeah 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 for sure um, but yeah it's a it's a great performance yeah, and yeah. uh you know and and it's it's great that he starts the movie and he of course has the last line as well right um yeah, right. it's it's wonderful. Yeah, I'm going to come come to the audience in a second. Can I just ask is 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 that the first time anyone has seen that? Is, it, is that a first time watch for anyone? Or has everybody seen that? Before? Oh, okay, great. So a few people to maybe ask in a second. But just before we go to the audience, that it was this the first Coen Brothers you've seen, or was there another kind of entry point? Because I think 
for for again for filmmakers who've got a, a, a big breadth of films over the years it's always interesting to 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 think about how you get into a filmmaker and then you know looking at their their other work and how it all fits together i mean i think probably i i would say fargo is probably the most obvious one that people get into or maybe the big lebowski but i think those those are the two that will really stand the test of time i think because even though no country for old men was the big oscar winner it was an adaptation sure and so even though it's an incredible film it was an adaptation so i think big lebowski for some reason you know or for reasons we understand if your fans you know casts a really long shadow and fargo is just total perfection yeah um, and has this the great performance i mean when you think of Frances mcdormand here sure so fresh-faced yeah Yeah. and then you you come to her in in fargo it's such a long way yeah to go she's such a a blank canvas here in a way um but yeah that was the only film they made when i saw it so i remember going going up to new york i think to to go and see raising arizona when it opened on 23rd street on its opening day you know it was kind of i was in deep yeah, <laughs> just yeah, from yeah, this absolutely. film but that's amazing to go from this to what many considers one of the great comedies raising arizona yeah, yeah, which yeah. is it's just fantastic i think i have this thing with the coen brothers where i i tend to get their films on the second watch they're the kind of filmmakers and the kind of films that they make it's kind of like oh yeah that was interesting that was kind of funny that was kind of cool then you watch it a second time no country for all men was like that it was like that's a masterpiece after watching it the second time but yeah interesting to be interesting to see what the what the audience think it's because there's so much in it the the detail yeah. is is so worked out that you know sometimes you just don't catch it all first time sure. And so a second time, you kind of know what you're getting. You can probably relax a little bit more into it and enjoy it more and then see everything. But, um, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's that, that they just pack so much in and it's all storyboarded. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Ryan has got the roving mic. Um, would anybody like to make a comment, ask a question, say anything about the, the film at all? I know it's hard being the first one. Otherwise, it's uh, it's me and James further. Go ahead. Um. I think you touched on it slightly, but I was very, I've probably seen it a couple of times, two or three times over the years, but um, I didn't remember the detail, but certainly here the the use of sound, the, the score and the sound design I thought was very impressive. And um, I think, well, there, there are a lot of these kind of semi-industrial type sounds, weren't there? Whirrings and the furnace and stuff, and it all made it quite... Um, surreal and you didn't often at times or to use the kind of the nerds term like difference between diegetic and non-diegetic you didn't know where where one began and the other ended sometimes directors clearly make the difference that goes from one to the other here you're never quite sure where the set was supposed to be coming from a lot of the time so i found that quite uh yeah impressive and interesting and, and the fact that um yeah, some sounds were clearly so exaggerated as to be clearly add to the surreal nature of it. Like when the uh, the newspaper was thrown against the window, <laughs> like almost like yeah, an explosion. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it was very very clever, very impressed by yeah. the use of sound design all, all the way through. I, I loved the timing of the 
at the beginning, the flies getting zapped in the, <laughs> exactly at the right moment in the dialogue ex- exchange. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit to, uh, similar to the the way the visuals work in terms of kind kind of coming coming in and out of space and time or dream sequences or or um, imaginings of what what what's going on, and the sound kind of matched up with that really really perfectly. Yeah, and and I mean, there's so many ceiling fans in it too it's such a motif throughout the movie and so you're always having this whirring sound of ceiling fans and or even like the echo of it you know throughout um but yeah that they it's very feels very intentional and controlled and like you say it not all of it seems to be in the room that you're in that it's not necessarily score but there is definitely this sort of pressure on on the characters that is invoked by the sound um, it's a good point, and it's funny at the beginning where where Maurice puts the money in the jukebox or takes it and then puts it in and selects the record, and it's almost like he's decided what the soundtrack of the film is going to be from then on, which is quite funny. I thought. Um, anyone else want to uh, say anything about the film? Yep, in the middle. I was going to say near the beginning, Emmett Walsh says that he's an idiot for, you know, getting the job. And it kind of occurred to me that every Coen Brothers film is kind of about loads of idiots, you know, kind of getting, you know, trapped in a plot together. And um, yeah, like misunderstandings and uh, miscommunications. And yeah, I just kind of saw it in its embryonic form here, I think. James, do you want to say? Well, I mean, they say that, you know, people just make the same film over and over. Directors make the same film over and over. And there's, you know, definitely a case to be made with them that, their films are generally quite plotted and um you know there's always a fall guy and there's and 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 yet there are some sort of heroic idiots certainly in raising arizona high mcdonough is kind of you know he's just an a romantic idiot really who's trying to uh um you know win win over um holly hunter's character and you know get them the baby that they want and it's you know it's sort of charming at the same time but you know it's not going to end well and I think, yeah, I think that those characters, they just write really well for um, because their films are so fast and sharp that even though a lot of the lead characters are idiots, um, they don't sort of dwell on it. So you're not you're not sort of weighed down by the idiocy. It just moves along at such a crack. And I think it works. It works really well because of that. Holly Hunter, incidentally, was the original lead for this. And she got a play on Broadway and she asked them to wait till the play had finished and they couldn't wait. So, um, yeah, so they cast Frances McDormand. But she is on the answer phone. (laughs) I don't know if anyone heard her very distinctive voice near the end on Maurice's answer phone talking about Uruguay. (laughs) Um, That's Holly Hunter. So they were friends. uh. Yeah, I was thinking about the where this, where you can see the links to later films and i think you know the idea of a quirky hitman you know Shigur in no country for old men is is the obvious one but there's so many others but then the the the, the sap or the idiot the you know the that is at the center of of these machinations that all all go wrong is really interesting because on the one hand here it, it, it's there isn't re- really anyone who's a complete idiot like say william h macy is in fargo and I think 
the further you get down the line with their films, the more these people are a commentary on, say, a lower, the status of lower middle class workers and who are always put upon by either the family or by the, you know, in that film, the father-in-law and by, Ameri- you know, the failure of the American dream more more broadly. And it's interesting how with a film like this, it is much more playing with into the genre in a visual sense you know, in a, in a storytelling sense. But then later on, when you've got more money and, and maybe more time, and then you're thinking about, okay, what commentary do we want to make about American culture? Because that's what a lot of people write about the, the Coen brothers, their, their assessment of uh, uh, Americana. Yeah, I mean, they, they generally wouldn't commit to no. or ad- admit to having any commentary at all. Um, you know, there's definitely a case to be made that there's no message and there's no commentary Um but in the later films like um, The Man Who Wasn't There or A Serious Man, which I love, um, or um, uh, um, Inside Lewin Davis, these are all people who, yeah, just events around them just get the better of them. They think they've, they think they've got control of something and then events around them just get the better of them. And that's definitely a theme um that they've explored over and over and over you know as soon as they try and escape the banality of their lives um they're trapped in some <laughs> endless catastrophe that that ends up you know ends up destroying them in some way and so uh, that's definitely something that that occurs yeah. over and over and and, and their character a, a lot of their characters across the board have got their place in the world and it's that that's the that's the triggering for all of the conflict that takes place is any of them like moving outside of that place in the world, which is kind of interesting when you, you know, you think about f- how filmmaking today is a lot of it's talked about, about what the, what the filmmaker's intention is kind of politically in many ways, you know? Yeah. And I, and I, I never really got that from them. I don't think you can really take politics no. um, out of their film. So you could, could imagine what their politics were just from their, you know, where they live and, um, and so on. But, but I don't feel like it ever really infiltrates into their films. They're not interested in making those kinds of films no, in the no. same way as Tarantino isn't, you know, that, mm. that they are filmmakers who love cinema and that's their greatest influence is making films for cinema or films about cinema. And what I was saying earlier about exploring genre, but putting their own twist on it the whole time. Um, and uh, I think that's their greatest skill, really, is their films are so distinct and yet somehow seem like they're part of a genre. I mean, the other thing we should say, this is the first appearance of Roderick Jaynes, their esteemed editor, who, of course, doesn't exist. He is, he's them, but for some reason they felt like they had too many names because they wrote it and directed it and produced it and so on. So they created Roderick Jaynes <laughs> and... It's definitely worth exploring the life of Roderick James. They claimed he was an editor on a movie they liked called Beyond Mombasa from the 1950s starring uh, Cornell Wilde and Donna Reed. And that, but he, he claimed he got thrown off it for making the movie Too Damn Prussian. And um, but they liked I, they liked his work, and so they used his name. All their films are edited by Roderick James, and it was like a, a big in joke until, of course, he was nominated for an Oscar for Fargo. <laughs> um, 
And so the question was, what happens if Roderick James wins the Oscar for Fargo? Um, but it didn't come to pass, luckily. But I noticed on IMDb now they've removed him and it just says, you know, um, edited by Joel and Ethan as Roderick James. The, the editing is so good and they they worked with Sam Raimi that that's who sort of supported them in in terms of uh, early filmmaking and getting getting this made in in many ways and you can see a little bit of that so I mean they worked on Evil Dead and then on what's that god what's the film that they wrote for Crime Wave which isn't a great movie I don't I don't think but um yeah that that I think if one of the things I would take away from this again, just because it hadn't been a long time since I've seen it, is just how amazingly beautifully edited it is. Those, those again, those sort of transitions are so are so clever. Yeah, that it's clearly one of their great skills, along with writing and directing and producing. You know, is is the their films very rarely feel like they're not edited to the be the best they can be you know you you look at this and like you say there's just not an yeah, 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 yeah not an ounce of extra baggage on it at all it plays so smoothly and lightly even though the subject matter is is you know very heavy and those the two big crowd pleasing scenes burying burying uh, uh marty alive and uh you know the hand the hand being stabbed at the end and the wall um I mean, they're just so well done. In in the burying scene, incidentally, um, they said that any time you don't see Marty, it's Ethan. They picked up some shots in Barry Sonnenfeld's back garden in East Hampton. Um, and so any time you sort of see the gun and you don't see Dan Hedaya's head, it's it's part of the pickups they did because they couldn't get it all in in time. So they, they felt like they could pick some stuff up later. Um, and Ethan pulled the short straw and had <laughs> to be buried underground. Um, and then at one point, apparently, Joel said they tried to get a message to him saying, don't move. We need you to not move. And he was like, well, why am I in here then? <laughs> Can't you just have soil? <laughs> Some <reason. laughs> Yeah, low budget filmmaking is best there, I suppose. Um, has anybody got any any kind of favorite Cohen brothers yeah i'd just like to mention the buster scruggs movie because most people i speak to haven't actually seen it because it didn't really get much of a cinema release but i think it's absolutely outstanding i think it's a fantastic film and um one of the things i really love about it is that it's got kind of poetry in it which you don't really see in many of the other films but i, th- I just think it's astonishing and it's got Tom Waits. So it yeah. Be, yeah. <laughs> well, they've done quite a few westerns. Well, that's the best. That's the best story in it, I think. The Tom Waits. I mean, anthology movies are a tough sell, and that was a Netflix film, so that they sort of followed their policy of not giving things long cinema releases, um, and it and sort of could be their last movie, you know, because because Joel is kind of doing his own thing now. Made the Macbeth movie and. Uh, did you like um, that? I thought that was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was so different, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So different. Um, it was funnily enough, what I'd seen um, the play the night before at the Almeida. Um, who was the actor? Saoirse Ronan was in the was in the lead. And then the next day, I saw 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 that. So it was really fascinating to see, obviously, kind of the theatrical adaptation and a cinematic adaptation, and they were both great in their own ways. You know. Yeah, I feel like. 
Buster Scruggs, if that is the last movie, it's like a perfect Coen Brothers way to end on a, yeah, 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 an yeah. anthology movie that's just, uh, you know, a little bit different. And uh, um, But yeah, so full of riches. Cool. Um, so if, I don't know if anybody's got a final point. Anybody wants to... Uh Oh, sorry, we've got a couple, so they're at the back, and then we'll come to the front. I mean, you mentioned it already, but um, for me, uh, uh, No Country for All no, is it? No Country for All Men, I just an uh, uh, um, amazing film. I, I'm not quite sure why, but it just held, held together so amazingly. There's the, um, you know, the background of Texas. Texas. Sugar uh, is, I've never seen a character like it. I don't think we'll ever see one ever again. Um, just the perfect film. It maybe has something to do with the fact that I saw it two days before lockdown. Ah, so right. I thought if I never saw another film again, it's not a bad one to end on. So, Yeah, that scene, the the Sugar scene with the coin is just, uh, you know, again, that's one of those set piece moments, I think, in the Coen brothers. But even there's, there's similarities here in terms of the, you know, there's the money and, you know, who has it and who doesn't. And people think that, you know, the, the other characters have, have done something that they haven't and all of this kind of stuff. So there's a similar similar thing going on there, yeah? Yeah, a lot of double crossing and, um, you know, and it's it's so nice in a way that they do have a, a best picture Oscar because they've made 18 movies. Their body of work is so outstanding. But you thought they're just a bit too left field for it ever to happen. But for some reason... Uh, the stars aligned that year and it was like the year of there will be blood and some absolutely really incredible, incredible movies films, that year. but um yeah they 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 made it it was great but but not a film in the top 100 sight and sound poll though no and yeah i i mean uh, you would have thought like you say that fargo big lebowski no country for old men or even raising arizona would have could have been in there yeah would have it is on a lot of people's list if you ask them to to do a hundred. I mean, those will probably all be in my top one hundred. But um, you know, it's just they're not for everyone, and people don't see them as sort of deep in a way or profound or um, like that's a crime. You know? yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that's just the way it goes with those polls. Sure, sure. And finally, over here. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I was. This is my first time seeing it. I'm very grateful to to have seen it here. But I I, I found okay. it so amazing how how much I really believed in in the characters and and kind of felt their depth despite the fact that they can also make you know do the kind of caricature, do the humor. But actually, within all of this, I really kind of believe in the characters and I really feel their that they're that it's they're not just you know it's so easy. If you're using the the kind of you know it's pulp it's pulp fiction it's film noir and you and you you're watching you think yeah well these are these because because they're playing also as you say in the meta way on film about films but the characters to me at least they felt very real they really kind of you know they go beneath the skin in a certain way they sink in I feel I felt yeah I think maybe that's something that's underestimated about how well drawn the characters are across the Coen Brothers films because they are kind of comedic characters or tragic characters or just killers you know yeah and I I feel like where they were. Um, I guess fortunate in this one. They obviously had very little money to get, you know, actors of note. Uh, but in in M. Emmett Walsh, um, you know, they they hit the jackpot um, by by getting someone who could absolutely uh, um, express the tone of the film, the humor and the violence at the same time. And then I think the other key one, in a way, is uh, is Dan Hedaya as Marty, who 
has an immediate impact that sort of furrowed brow and the anger and intensity that great scene where he's trying to pick up the what i always call the joni mitchell character you know and uh you can just feel his frustration at life and uh and that's just he's just a great performance by him another brilliant character actor who you sort of see everywhere and they they sort of lucked out i really feel getting him and then you know because john gets who plays um uh um ray the lead yeah he that's a straight man role there's not too much to do and then we're seeing francis mcdormand one of the all-time great film actors um you know the very very start in her first role and there's already i mean she's not the full francis mcdormand but there's already a lot going on there and she she really brings all that nuance into the role straight away it's fantastic yeah absolutely so um those listening um if you haven't uh, seen the film for a while definitely uh, check it out on that criterion Re- restoration if you can get it um so that's it for the year um we do have a an end of year review show coming up on the 27th that'll just drop on the feed um i spoke to the independent film critic uh, Cl- clarice lockery about the films of the year obviously um subscribe to the cinematologist wherever um, you listen to your podcasts thanks to George and Patrick and Ryan from and the staff from the Garden Cinema for supporting the podcast this uh, this year James thanks so much for coming down and being so great on the show twice now well thanks so much for having me and finally thanks to you all for coming tonight and supporting the podcast we'll be back in the new year but until then this has been the Cinematologist podcast thanks for listening <laughs>